Pancreatic cancer strikes fear into the hearts of every practicing internist, pathologist, oncologist, and general surgeon on behalf of their patients. And unfortunately for all of us, it's on the rise. By 2030, it will be expected to climb to the number two spot for causes of cancer death. What new insights can we bring to the recognition and identification of pancreatic cancer to help curb that trend? You're listening to ReachMD, and I'm your host, Ana Maria Rosario, and joining me today at Provis GI Insights in New York is Dr. Amy Lucas, Assistant Professor of Medicine at the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai, New York. Dr. Lucas, welcome to the program today. Thank you so much for having me. Can you give us a basic sense of the sheer scope of pancreatic cancer and why it's so difficult to catch and treat? So you're right. Pancreatic cancer is a, is a big problem here in the United States. Um, currently, it's actually the number four killer cause of cancer deaths in the United States. And you're absolutely correct that when we look at mathematical models looking at what's going to happen over the next 10 to 20 years, we see that pancreatic cancer is actually on the rise and it is expected to be the number two cause of cancer deaths within the next 20 years or so. So we know right now about 45,000 or so patients are diagnosed in the United States with pancreatic ductal adenocarcinoma every year, and the survival rates are actually quite grim. So five-year survival for pancreatic cancer is really in the single digits, and we don't have great ways to detect pancreatic cancer early to treat it adequately, and to make sure that patients either don't get pancreatic cancer or can survive from the disease. So, Dr. Lucas, what are some of the select risk factors for pancreatic cancer? So, the number one risk factor probably is tobacco smoke. Um, There are large epidemiology studies that have looked at risk factors for pancreatic cancer. And honestly, if you put enough patients into a study, you can probably find some significant results. Cigarette use, pipe use can be associated with pancreatic cancer. Heavy alcohol use, and here we usually think about greater than three alcoholic drinks per day, can be associated with an increased risk of pancreas cancer. We're learning more about the association of chronic pancreatitis and the development of pancreatic cancer, and so that is also a big risk factor for development of pancreatic cancer. But we're also learning about the role of obesity, particularly with the body mass index or BMI over 40. We're seeing an increased risk of pancreatic cancer. There are other associations with pancreatic cancer, such as particular blood types. We're learning a little bit more about that. Perhaps there's a role for infection. The association of some surgeries with pancreatic cancer, we see some increased risk. Now, how does the family history of pancreatic cancer compare as a risk factor to other cancer types? So family history is a really interesting thing, and that's one of my particular focuses. So, you know, when we look at patients who have breast cancer or colon cancer, if we see a patient with a young onset breast cancer or colon cancer, that really raises raises a lot of red flags for us. Or if we see families where we see multiple affected members with breast cancers, ovarian cancers, um, colon cancers, we start to think about genetic syndromes. Um, Unfortunately for pancreatic cancer, what we often see is that we assume that patients either had really bad luck or they sort of brought it upon themselves. You know, they drank too much, they smoked too much, and then they got pancreatic cancer. And what I think is very underappreciated is the role of a family history in the development of pancreatic cancer. So probably about 10% of pancreatic cancers actually have a familial component to it. The largest known genetic risk factor for pancreatic cancer, meaning the one that contributes the most that we know about uh, to development of pancreatic cancer, are actually the BRCA mutations that are much better known for breast and ovarian cancer. Um, But those are also associated with uh, prostate cancer um, and also pancreatic cancer. There are a number of other 
genetic mutations that predispose to various different cancers that over time have been associated with pancreatic cancer. Um, there's the FAM syndrome, which is familial atypical multiple mole melanoma, um, and that's associated with an increased risk of pancreatic cancer. Puts Jaeger's syndrome, which is a syndrome uh, that involves a lot of hamartomatous polyps throughout the GI tract, can be also associated with an increased risk of pancreas cancer. Lynch syndrome, which is very well known for colon cancer, has actually been found to be associated with pancreatic mm -hmm. cancer. And then there's a rare syndrome called hereditary pancreatitis, which causes an early onset pancreatitis in patients, and that's associated with pancreatic cancer as well. The problem is we actually don't know what a lot of the genes are that are linked with hereditary type uh, pancreatic cancer. We're learning a little bit more about that um, with studies of patients who are either at high risk of pancreas cancer um, because they have multiple affected family members or looking more at patients who have some of these germline mutations. So we hope to know more in the future. Well, if you're just tuning in, you're listening to ReachMD, and I'm your host, Ana Maria Rosario. And I'm joined by Dr. Amy Lucas from the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai in New York. So, Dr. Lucas, turning our attention to the precancerous lesions, can you first give us a rundown of the important types, and then we can discuss here how you go about identifying them before they develop into pancreatic cancer? Sure. So, one of the things we're seeing a lot of now um, with a lot of cross-sectional imaging, and by cross-sectional I mean CAT scans or MRIs, we're seeing a lot of cysts in the pancreas, and this raises you know, rightfully a lot of concern in caregivers' eyes. So there's a few important things to think about when we're thinking about cystic lesions of the pancreas. And one is, you know, do they have any cancer potential or not? And one of the ways that we determine whether or not there's cancer potential is trying to figure out whether or not the cysts are what we call mucinous. And there are certain characteristics of cysts that can tell us whether or not a cyst is mucinous and therefore has cancer potential, or if it's just a simple cyst like a pseudocyst that might be a result of an episode of pancreatitis or something like that, and really is a benign condition. So we're seeing more and more of these cystic lesions, and it's important to work closely with your gastroenterologist to differentiate them. So the ones we see a lot are intraductal papillary mucinous neoplasms, and these seem to be almost everywhere nowadays. IPMNs are what we call them, and they are cystic lesions of the pancreas. They can be found throughout the pancreas either in the main duct of the pancreas, and those are called main duct IPMNs, or in the branch ducts of the pancreas, and those are called branch duct IPMNs. And we can use a various different tools and imaging techniques to try to figure out what kind of cysts we're dealing with, whether or not it's mucinous by sampling perhaps some of the fluid inside. And then we can start to understand also some of the features of the cyst, such as are there concerns for cancer development within the cyst lining on some of the cytology sampling of the fluid or other concerning features like that. There's another cyst that does have cancer potential, and that's called a mucinous cystic neoplasm. These are more often found in women, actually. And when we look at the cyst lining, they stain positive for estrogen receptor and progesterone receptor. They do have cancer potential, often located in the body or the tail of the pancreas. And we can also differentiate those cysts from, let's say, the pseudocysts by characteristic imaging findings and also sampling some of the tissue. 
There's another precancerous lesion that's important to understand, and those are the pancreatic intraepithelial neoplasia lesions, or PANIN lesions for short. These are small introductal lesions that are formed by abnormal proliferations of ducts, and they actually vary in degree of dysplasia from PANIN 1, which is, let's say, the most benign, to PANIN 3, which verges on basically carcinoma in situ. Some pancreatic cancers arise from PANIN, but not all PANINs actually become cancers. And the tricky part about them is that we don't really think at this point we have a great way to image them on a CAT scan or an MRI. We might think that there are some changes that we could see on a very specialized technique called endoscopic ultrasound when we're looking at the pancreatic parenchyma that might suggest the presence of PANIN, um, but oftentimes we're not able to tell that those lesions are actually present. Um, when we look at autopsy studies, however, um, you know, patients that have passed away for various different reasons, they walk across the street, get hit by a bus, and pass away that way, um, we actually see that PANINs are very prevalent um, in uh, your average, average American. Um, but we do also know that we see more panin lesions and more advanced panin lesions in patients who have pancreas cancer. And so when we look at, let's say, the resections, the pancreatic resections for patients who have pancreatic cancer, we see a lot of panin-3 lesions and panin-2 lesions in the area surrounding the pancreas. So we do think that there's a clear association and a fairly well-defined genetic sequence of events that lead to the development of cancer. Let's focus on the best imaging options to capture the pancreas. What are your recommendations? What often happens is that patients uh, will have a CAT scan um, first, uh, and so this has either happened directly to look at the pancreas or because of something else. Perhaps we're looking for appendicitis or gallbladder disease or something else, and we happen to capture the pancreas. So I think that CAT scans are a very valuable technique in looking at the pancreas, particularly if they're pancreatic protocol CAT scans. Mm -hmm. Other techniques to image the pancreas include MRI exams, and those can really, in conjunction with a cholangiogram that we do through the MRI, can really give you a nice look at the pancreatic duct, the side branches, and investigate for any cysts. Abdominal ultrasounds are not used often, and that's because it's very challenging to visualize the pancreas given its position in the body on a transabdominal ultrasound. But what we can do is we can place an ultrasound probe into the stomach and into the first part of the small intestine by using an endoscope and an ultrasound at the end of the endoscope. And this is a technique called endoscopic ultrasound. And that actually nicely allows us to visualize the pancreas, um, get a good look at the entire organ. And the nice thing about endoscopic ultrasound is that if we see any abnormalities, if we see a mass or if we see a cyst that's of adequate size, we can actually sample some of that fluid and image the pancreas and make some diagnostic decisions at that same time. So endoscopic ultrasound is also a nice tool to image the pancreas. So what is your general thought process for monitoring pancreatic cysts? Is it a, a watch and wait pattern or something more proactive? Right. So pancreatic cysts are a challenging problem, as we discussed earlier on. And, you know, when we look back at our older literature, we used to think that the risk of pancreatic cancer in some of the IPMNs was actually very, very high, particularly in the main duct IPMNs. And so we used to think that cancer risk was somewhere between 30 and possibly even 70 percent in some of these patients with IPMNs. And that's because when we looked at our studies, we had looked at patients who had undergone surgical resections of the pancreas and looked at how many of those patients actually had cancer or dysplasia in the pancreas. But more recently, we've looked at larger, more epidemiology-type approaches to figuring out what actually happens with these pancreatic cysts. And so some groups have actually pulled the 
ICD-9 or the billing codes for pancreas cysts from large health data sets such as the Kaiser data set, and Betchen Wu did this out of Kaiser. And they can look at all patients with pancreatic cancer and sort of follow to see what happens over time. And what his studies have showed is that the risk of cancer is actually quite low and much lower than we thought it was in some of the previous surgical literature. And that we see the pancreatic cancers particularly very early on once patients are diagnosed with a cyst. We often see the pancreas cancers within three to six months of the cyst diagnosis. And then your risk of pancreas cancer is actually decently low from that point on. Now, that being said, it doesn't mean that it's low enough that one can ignore the risk of pancreas cancer if we identify a patient with an IPMN or an intraductal mucinous neoplasm. So we have certain criteria where we can sort of use these criteria to determine next steps for the surveillance and management of pancreatic cysts. And these have been modified over time so that we can figure out what the really high-risk criteria are and what can sort of place our minds at ease. So when we look at a cyst, we look for some of the high-risk stigmata of cancer. Um, and that's really a patient with obstructive jaundice, meaning the ducts are blocked because of a cyst in the head of the pancreas, an enhancing solid component within the cyst, or if we have a main pancreatic duct that's greater than about 10 millimeters. And if a patient has any of those characteristics in the presence of a cyst, then we do recommend thinking about surgery and consultation with your local pancreatic surgeon. If the patient doesn't, we look at some worrisome features. From a clinical perspective, that can be pancreatitis. And from an imaging perspective, it's whether or not the cyst is large, meaning about three centimeters or larger. If it has a thickened or enhanced wall, the pancreatic duct is somewhere between five and nine millimeters. There's a non-enhancing mural nodule or just an abrupt change in the caliber of the pancreatic duct with some distal pancreatic atrophy. If we see any of those things, then we move to an endoscopic ultrasound, the technique I mentioned earlier. And then from there, we can make some further decisions on whether or not to go to surgery. If we don't see any of those things, then we can look at the size of the largest cyst and we can really determine surveillance intervals from there. I mean, we have guidelines that were published in pancreatology a few years back that suggest the interval for monitoring some of these cysts. So if the cyst is large, meaning over three centimeters, we follow them quite closely, perhaps every three to six months, perhaps with an MRI alternating with an endoscopic ultrasound. Whereas a smaller cyst, perhaps something that's less than a centimeter, you can really probably get away with a CAT scan or an MRI in about two or three years. And then cyst sizes that are in between those two, you think about some sort of intermediate uh, surveillance interval. Are there any closing thoughts on this topic before we wrap up our discussion today? No, I think you've raised a lot of important points today. One of my main concerns is always trying to figure out ways to better prevent patients from getting pancreatic cancer because then I think we can really make an impact um, on disease morbidity and mortality. And then also investing really in a lot of pancreatic cancer research so that we can figure out better ways to treat those patients who are diagnosed with pancreatic cancer so that we can improve their survival. Well, with that, Dr. Lucas, thank you for being here. And I'd like to thank you for your time and insights on identifying pancreatic cancer. I'm Ana Maria Rosario for ReachMD. To access this and other important interviews, please visit ReachMD.com. And thanks as always for listening.